target is danger. Into the fray leaps the mighty man of steel, racing with supersonic speed to exploding excitement, holding fearlessly into violence and villainy. No human onslaught can stay super invincible. Zooming out of the skies and crashing through into the very teeth of hair-raising peril. A towering hero booming with super action. Sworn enemy of all evils smashing through. His only shield, his super body. At every turn slamming into breathtaking hazards, the superhero of them all. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a speeding locomotive, leaping buildings in a single bound. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, fighting for truth and justice. See the adventures of Superman. Chama people, and welcome to our 146th episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, and more. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and with me today, making his debut on the podcast, is the one, the only, Frank Mendoza. Hey, Frank, how are you, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks very much. I know I'm doing great. Hopefully you're doing well, too. This is exciting to be on this podcast. I've been looking forward to this one. Oh, it's very, we're very, very happy to have you on. You know, we, we had you on our sister podcast, Gold Stand, and had a wonderful time on there with you. So definitely glad you could make the uh, mm. crossover to discuss some superhero, some superhero movies, and in particular, the superhero who started it all, Superman of all people. Because today, folks, we are discussing Superman and the Mole Men from 1951. This was directed by Lee Sholem, who has directed such things as Doomsday Machine, Pharaoh's Curse, and two Tarzan movies. The film was written by Richard Fielding, while the original score was by Daryl Corker and Walter Green. So, Frank, what are your general impressions on this movie? And also, where does your where's your superhero fandom sort of where's your superhero fandom at? Okay, I will begin by saying that Superman was my very first superhero that I ever experienced. As a little kid, the Christopher Reeve movies, the first two especially, I loved. I remember having them on VHS tape. I watched them over and over and over again. So the Superman legend, I was I've been extremely familiar with for a lot of decades. Um, so when there was a chance to talk about Superman in the moment, of course, I had seen George Reeves as Superman, maybe an episode of his TV show here and there. I saw his famous appearance on the Isle of Lucy episode, but I never really got the chance to see George Reeves in action. You know, I, I had seen the 2006 film Hollywood Land where Ben Affleck plays him. So the so my familiarity with the Superman legends was pretty much in place, which helped with this a lot uh, following this. Uh, as far as other superheroes, I mean, I love them all. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a fan of Batman. I'm a fan of Doctor Strange. I'm a fan of Spider-Man. And honestly, all three Spider-Mans, I don't really... You know, if I, I think they all have something to bring to the table. So there's definitely there's definitely the superhero fan in me. I mean, I think that like anything else, you know, some I like more than others, but it's great entertainment. You know, it's the it's a great representation of the magic of the movies, fantasy world, you know. Very, very much so. And so, yeah, so this was this was your first time sitting down watching this. And so, yeah, what did you make of this movie? <laughs> Well, uh, the first thing is that, like I already said, 
knowing the Superman legend already, his origins, the voiceover narration that opens the film didn't it didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know. You know, he's the sole survivor of his planet. He was sent to planet Earth, Superman. So all of that foundation was already laid out, which helped. I did really like the way that his character was introduced. It was very it was very typical of or at least, you know, what I would assume would be very typical of the time period. You know, the movie came out in 1951. So, you know, there was a, there, there, you know, there, there was a, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but there was a corniness factor to the whole thing. There he is with his fists on his hips and he's standing proudly and the American flag is blowing in the wind behind him. And the voice of a narrator is saying, you know, he's the valiant defender of truth, justice in the American way. So it was, you know, it, it was fun. It was really fun. I will say that watching this movie was fun for two reasons. Number one, because it gave me a different perspective of the character and the legacy that I wasn't too familiar with. Different actor, different, you know, different context, different time period, different way of telling a story. That's number one. And number two, the other thing about it that I found really enjoyable was that it was very much a product of its time. Yeah. But in the same respect, I was I was surprised by how much of it is still reflected in our world today. Uh, a lot of the themes that the, that the film brings up, I don't want to put the cot before the horse and say too much at this point, but I'll just say that it was a film that was both a product of its time and timeless. Mm, very, very well said, because uh, I, you know when I saw the runtime of this film, and this film, by the way, clocks in at barely an hour, so you think to yourself, what are they going to be able to, to tell in about you know an hour's worth of, of film? Because you know this is like the length of what we would get for a TV show nowadays for an episode, say, of a TV show. You know, when you look at, I think of you know stuff that I was watching recently, like The Boys, for example, where an episode is like an hour, or Stranger Things. You know, so that's it's like the length of an episode today. But um, you, you're very right. I think it's not your typical kind of superhero story where you have kind of good versus evil and like, you know, there's, there's the typical adversary that Superman has to fight. There's definitely, it's very politically charged, I think. And it's trying to tell a broader story compared to what one might expect during the, this time. Because, you know, you look at obviously today's superhero shows or superhero movies, they try to, give more depth to the character. They try to tell more of just the black and white. Okay. It's the good guy versus the bad guy here. It's, it's interesting how these so-called mole men, when we go and look at, uh, look at them and such, they are not actually the villains of the story. They're not like the alien race that Superman has to, has to face. So I really liked it for that. And I agree with you. The, the, so many actors have, have taken on the mantle of Superman and they've all have been good for different reasons, but I can definitely see why George uh, Reeves was so well-loved because, yes, like you said, there's a corniness to it, but he very much is the, the Superman that's literally jumped off the pages of the comic, or should we say the early iterations of the comic. That's why I love this so much. And like you said, you know, there's not maybe much too much going on, but there's enough to keep you hooked. So, uh, but I totally agree with you when it comes to that. So let's kick off with the Man of Steel himself, George Reeves as Clark Kent, Superman. So Frank, what did you make of our protagonist? Okay. I thought that, well, first of all, I will say that George Reeves was terrific. I do want to say that, first of all. I was... 
not expecting that his interpretation of the character would be as different as the interpretation that I'm used to. And admittedly, you know, Christopher Reeve is the only iteration of Superman that I feel comfortable saying that I know like the back of my hand. <laughs> like okay. if you were to ask me to recite a whole scene from Superman one or two, I probably could. Have and you I, been and exposed obviously, to Henry Cavill as well as Superman? Henry Cavill. I have seen the, I have seen the man of steel and I have, you know, I have seen some of the more, some of the more recent iterations, but maybe it's a generational thing for me, but to me, Christopher Reeve is, you know, it's, that's where I have the, the sentimental, that's where I have the nostalgia factor, you know? So, and I'm not saying that I think Christopher Reeve is better than George Reeves or that George Reeves was better than Chris. I just think that in terms of, oh yeah, that's the one I know. Like that's my go-to, that's my automatic association that I make in my head. For me, that's Christopher Reeve. So seeing the way that George Reeves portrayed him was fascinating for me because I thought that he was actually much more, he plays the character of Clark Kent much more assertively than Christopher Reeve does, I thought. He's, he's much more assertive. He's much more outspoken to Lois Lane. And he's, <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound, this might sound unkind. I don't mean it to, but he's not quite as dorky. <laughs> as Christopher Reeve's version of Clark Kent is. I mean, yeah, he still has, you know, he's, he's got the, you know, he's, he's, he still dresses the same, you know, he has the eyeglasses, the disguise, the whole thing, but he doesn't have, at least not in this film, I didn't really see any of the social awkwardness or the, uh, the fumbling or the clumsiness that would come to define Christopher Reeve's iteration. And again, I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm just saying that this was surprising to me to see this, to see this character go in this different direction. Um, at the very beginning of the film, when he and Lois Lane show up at this oil well and the PI guy, Mr. Cargan, and he's telling them, you know, this is the, you know, this is, this is the deepest well in the world. And, you know, he's basically trying to sell it to them because they're writing a feature story on this well. And, Again, when problems, when problems come up and Cargan turns to them and says, oh, I'm sorry, it looks like you won't get your story after all. It was Clark Kent who turns to him, sees the tools buried in the ground and says, uh, I'm not so sure we won't get a story. And I don't know, I, if, if, this were, if, if, this were a, if this were one of the films in the, in the Christopher Reeve, Mago Kidda franchise, I see, I more easily see Mago Kidda delivering that line. If that makes any sense, just the way that they, the way that they embody these characters, you know, the, the qualities that come out. I loved, <laughs> I loved a lot of the, uh, again, I'll use the word corny in a, not in a derogatory sense, expressions like great Scott. Yeah, I mean, of course, the first thought that came to my mind was ah, Doc Brown, Back to the Future. <laughs> but uh, you know, having lines like that, they added a certain—I don't know—just just, just a, a, an element of an element of of wistful fun. You know, you see how you know you see how, I, I enjoy seeing how different filmmaking trends, just in terms of the way stories are told, the way visual effects have evolved. And the way that the quality of writing dialogue has evolved as more and more over the ages, more and more, uh, maybe the word I'm looking for is, I don't know if it's blunt or 
less clean dialogue was allowed, uh, you know, by the late 1960s when film ratings came out. So I, I enjoy seeing films that in that sense are products of their time. And this was definitely one that fit the bill. I but he was in, go, ahead. I'm, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, uh, all I was going to say, the last thing I want to say about the Clark Kent character, at least at this point, was that he was intelligent. He was intelligent and he was the one in a lot of the scenes who was who was calling the shots. Now, Lois Lane was still outspoken. Yeah, but I don't know. He, he did more, I think, to. Uh, to keep her aggression in line. You know, telling her, no, don't do this or no, wait a minute. Or, and that's not really the dynamic that we get in the film. So this was this was cool to see what came before what I'm familiar with. Oh, yes, for sure. And what I think is great is, I guess the dynamics maybe also change because also, I suppose, of the relate interpersonal relationships between men and women on the job and stuff. And maybe during the 50s and, you know, when it came to this period, maybe men, it was more of a man's world, if you will. So maybe you didn't have as much of the emancipated woman character that you would see with Margot Kidder's Lois Lane, for example, is, you make a great point when you say that Clark Kent very much does in this what Lois Lane would do in later iterations. They probably, maybe, I think also, they gave her more to do down the line to, for her to be that kind of more investigative reporter. Here, the more investigative reporter is literally Clark Kent because he's the one, like you were saying, is kind of snooping around, putting clues together, and literally doing what an investigative, an investigative reporter does. Whereas Lois kind of, aside from kind of screaming and maybe sort of ad-libbing here and there, sadly doesn't get to do as much, which, but I guess it's because at the time, maybe female characters were written more as ancillary characters to our protagonists. We were tended to be men anyways. So I think that's most likely what it was, but I agree. I, this is such a cool Clark Kent. And cause you made the point of he's very much the, um, He's not the awkward, mild-mannered reporter that we get. And he's literally, it's almost like there's not such a huge difference between his Superman and his Clark Kent, except for possibly the costume and the stance that they take, if you will. Because even as Clark Kent, like you said, he's very assertive. He's very sure of himself. He's asking questions. And I suppose when he becomes Superman, it's just, you know, I'm Clark Kent with powers. I can fly around, you can shoot bullets at me, and I can just look kind of very sort of superior while, you, while bullets just bounce off my chest. And I think here we very much get that, the very human side of Superman, the man who literally cares about people and about trying to teach, uh, you know, I guess us, the viewers, and whoever will listen to have respect for those who are different than you. And here's very much the moral lessons that he tries to give. It's more of the moral driven Superman, I think. That characteristic does remain with the Superman down the line, but or she's in the future iterations, but I don't think it is as potent as it is here. He was very much this man is morality, this man is about ethics. I guess here he was closer to what Captain America is these days in the MCU. It's that kind of guy, if we want to make a direct comparison, I suppose. Um, so did you have anything else so you wanted to say on either Clark Kent or Superman before we go to our next character? Just one more thing, if I may. Sure. As you said, this Superman had much more of a direct moral or direct ethical message to, to send to the audience. And I was totally cool with that. I did find that uh, for the dialogue that he was given, 
to say like when he like when he was telling um the mob the angry mob he said i'm giving you one last chance to stop behaving like nazi stormtroopers you know and he says you're invading their world of, of speaking of the mole men you invaded their world and it, it, it just felt very um it came across to me amusingly and entertainingly it came across as almost didactic in nature like beating you over the head with what the message is you know there, there really is no hey let's read between the lines here it's nope here it is right here stated clearly directly no subtlety and whatsoever <laughs> no subtlety <laughs> again which i appreciated a lot it was it was fun to watch very much to so listen to Oh, yeah, very much so. And I guess, you know, obviously being 1951, you know, World War II was still very much in the public conscience, obviously, because, you know, the world war had only been over like six years or thereabouts by the time this movie was being made. So I'm sure. So obviously even the Nazi stormtrooper comment, as sad as it could still be used today because of what we've been seeing in the world there, it must have been even more poignant seeing as. It was only five years since five or six years since World War II had ended. And I guess then there was the whole communist scare, which was starting to come out as well. So there was probably added to that as well. So it was kind of, you know, anti uh, anti Nazi sentiment and also, I think, anti communist sentiment. So it definitely plays into this this film. And I think uh, I think you can probably tell where the director and the writer's stance was on all on everything that was going on politically, for sure. So, yeah. So uh, let's let's move on here then getting to the woman you can't not have when you're dealing with a Superman movie. In this case, we have Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane. So what did you make of this version of, of Lois of Rank? I would say that if I had to select a word to describe the way I perceived her, very pragmatic. She was very pragmatic. She was very grounded. She like the character of Lois Lane should do. She shot from the hip. She did not mince words. And she sometimes in her lack of a filter, sometimes said things that, you know, could have been seen as insensitive or sometimes just outright cold. For example, when they come into the, when they enter the shed and they find, they find pops on the ground and, you know, Clark Kent says, Oh my you know, great Scott, here he is. And her reaction is now Clack, she says, now Clack, don't go building it up. He probably had a heart attack. He was an old man. It's as simple as that. I mean, here they're standing over this this poor man on the ground. And she's just saying, yeah, it was simply a heart attack. He was old. And you know, just just that very blunt, you know, <laughs> no holds bad. I thought I thought she embodied that pretty well. I will say that given the she did as well as any actress could have given the expectations of female characters at the time i would say um I th if she had gone too far into the territory of sarcastic mean-spirited uh lack of a filter i think they were probably treading very carefully to make sure that she didn't come across as as too harsh because then audiences would probably i don't know want to say audiences would probably stay away in droves maybe that's a bit too extreme but that might not have been it wouldn't have been perceived as a fun dynamic i think between these two reporters from the daily planet who have this back and forth of you always act like you lead a double life and he's always winking at the camera saying oh 
I know Lois, but you know, don't worry, <laughs> you know, everything's cool. <laughs> um, so I thought she did well with coming across as a bit, you know, a, a bit hardened as, you know, as a lot of people, I would assume probably have to be to work in the field that they do where they probably cover, <laughs> you know, these kinds of, you know, crises or tragedies, or, you know, shocking events on an almost daily basis. Um, every once in a while she did, and this is more, I think the script than, than Phyllis Coates, every once in a while, she did sort of teeter into falling into the territory of, of damsel in distress. Like when she saw the, uh, the mole men at the window and she screamed and we wouldn't have had, we wouldn't have had Clack Kent scream. You know, we didn't have, uh, you know, we would, we wouldn't have had, we certainly wouldn't have had Benson scream. Um, look shocked maybe but not scream so every once in a while you know they they had her you know quote unquote fulfill the damsel in distress role but to their credit and especially to her credit the split second after she screams the next time we see her she is insisting emphatically hey i'm not crazy don't you dare call me crazy i know what i saw they were there they wanted to kill me so she was right back to you know she just went right back into uh lowest lane mode so that was that was pretty cool to see especially when i especially when i was taking a look at the very few other female characters who were in the film come to think that the only other female character i can think of is the woman who when benson was stirring up the mob uh not once but twice she said uh, when she said oh, oh i saw the moment myself and both times that she said that, she prefaces it with, I was in the middle of putting up my hair <laughs> and then I saw them at the window or whatever. So both times, and, and then when it comes back to her and you saw them, you just said, you saw them too, right? She said, yes, I was putting up my hair. <laughs> like she repeats the line. So um, it was good to have that balance of, you know, Lois Lane in there with that as well. Yeah. Because yeah. that's not something Lois Lane would have said. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, would have rolled that, yeah. her eyes, I think. Oh, yeah, very much so. I, and I actually found that hilarious myself. And it's interesting you mentioned there's a very... There's probably a lack of female characters because other than um, Lois and the, that, should we say, that one woman who's part of the mob, we have the nurse who just kind of like, oh, oh I don't right, want right. these creatures in my hospital. But that's pretty much it. We don't really have such a high, high presence of women, which is uh, curious. But um, but yeah, I agree with you. I enjoyed this Lois Lane. She's not obviously the Lois Lane that we get today and so on. But for the most part, I thought she did a good job. And uh, she still is the feisty character to a certain extent that we have in, uh, in future movies. But yeah, as I said before, they kind of leave more of the feistiness to Clark and to Superman in this. But And yeah, the screaming... I was like, okay, yeah, it's 1950. They're going to scream. So like, obviously when you get them, when as soon as the moment show up, I'm like, and cue scream. And there she was. <laughs> <laughs> and there she was. Exactly. So, but, but no, other than that, I enjoyed it. And, uh, and I think uh, Phyllis Coates did a good job of this. And I think they work very well together as a pair. I mean, cause you know, you have to imagine them being like, a, should we say, a, an ongoing couple with at least when it comes to TV shows. So they very much complement one another. And yes, you did mention the fact that there's very little subtlety, just the fact that it's it, it, Clark is one step away from telling Lois I'm Superman. Just the way he keeps going. I was like, 
maybe I am, maybe I'm living a, a double life. Who knows? So it is very much, you can pull it back a little bit if you want to, Clark. You don't have to do it because, you know, she's going to figure it out if you just carry on like that. But, but no, I thought she was, she was a good character and I did enjoy what Phyllis brought to this. So let's get to the man who represents law enforcement in the small town of Silsby. We have Stanley Andrews as the sheriff. So what did you make of our law enforcement here, Frank? A few different things. <laughs> My initial impression of him was, oh, OK, this guy is on Team Superman. And I say that because he refers to Luke Benson as crazy. He refers to the whole mob as, you know, we got to get them under control. We can't have them running around and shooting up the town, basically. But then he falls prey to his own vanity when he wants to call the state police he wants to call in for additional help and he's advised not to and he's sort of sweet talked he's manipulated into putting the phone down not calling the state police you know he's they say to him if you can show them that you can handle this yourself you know if you think think of think of think of all of the positive publicity that's going to bring to you think what that's going to do to your image and your reputation on the other hand if you call the state police yeah, it, it struck me as very much of the uh, kind of sort of, you know, on the peripheral. I'd say it, it struck me very much as sort of the John Wayne mentality. You know, if you call in for additional help, if you call in the cavalry, you know, if, you, if you're not able to face this alone, then, you know, are you really a man? Are you really a leader? So I, th I thought that was an interesting element of his character to include. In the story, I mean, like you said, this, this movie is only about an hour long. And of all things that they could have left in and all things that they could have taken out, they chose to leave that piece of it in. So I was, that's one thing that I was curious about is, you know, were they trying to say something about power? Were they trying to say, or was it just simply, was it time filler to meet the hour long requirement? <laughs> I wasn't quite sure. But uh, the sheriff, he took a lot more than I think a lot of sheriffs would have taken from Benson, you know, and Benson's swinging at him and, um, you know, Benson decks him. But uh, yeah, I, I think overall the sheriff, yeah, I think he had the best interests of the, uh, of the town in mind. I just think that he also simultaneously, he also had, uh, you know, his own interests in mind as well. So I think that made him more of a, uh, rather than having him be just the as you said the one-dimensional good guy you know sort of the stock character here i am representing law and order and my only lines throughout this entire hour are going to be yes superman no superman i'm with you superman you know they, they gave him a gave the actor who played the sheriff a little bit more to work with you know given the constraint of an hour it was a considerable amount i thought yes and here's the very weird thing about this character because i thought to myself you're supposed to be the sheriff of this small town because I think the population is what, like uh, 1,630 people or something like that. So it's a very, very small town. Um, but I thought to myself, if you're supposed to be law, you know, local law enforcement and represent law and order, you're not particularly a particular figure of authority in the sense that everybody's walking over this guy in the sense that like, oh, put that guy in jail. No, we won't put him in jail because I mean... Seriously, I mean, there were moments when I'm like, dude, maybe you shouldn't have been the sheriff because you should kind of, you know, throw your weight around just a little bit more or 
be more authoritative. You have the badge, not Luke Benson, but you're taking lip from this guy that there's no tomorrow. Like, oh, clap him in irons. And it's not happening. So people are like looking at him going, are we supposed to do something, Chief? You know, they, they don't <laughs> do anything about it. So I, I wonder whether like he's such a pushover and he maybe is like, I mean, I don't know in a small town like Silsby what the biggest crime might be. They probably have very, like very, very little crime in this, in this little town. But, and so I'm assuming probably the sheriff doesn't have a lot, of, lot to do when it comes to arresting people or there being murders or stuff like that. So maybe he, he's the man for the job because it's such a sort of sleepy little town where they're just doing this, you know, working on this oil, this oil rig or whatever. But I don't know. I was shaking my head at this. Time. I'm like, come on, grow a pair, dude, do something. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was, it was just getting on my nerves how he's being pushed over by Luke Benson. But like you said, maybe this, maybe the subtext is, uh, and you know, this is just me off my, off the top of my head, trying to think of what this might be is maybe how passive people can be when something happens, like a group of people are singled out and you don't do anything about it. You're kind of like, oh, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything and so on. So it could be maybe the writers are trying to show passive law enforcement when it comes to the mob rule over, uh, overruling what is supposed to be law and order. So maybe that's what it is. Seeing once again, World War II was still fresh in people's minds. So we know, of course, the persecution of various ethnic groups, the persecution of of, um, of communist people, people thought to be communists, like, oh, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, you guys want to kill him? Go ahead. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just a poor sheriff. I can't do anything about this. So it could be just being, you know, showing how, how passive people can be when it comes to these kind of situations, I guess, is that he's just going to stand by and take it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was, I mean, I thought Stanley Andrews did a good job, but I think that's, he just irked me because I thought he could do more as the sheriff of this town. But you know, anyway, that's that's the way I see it. So, uh, did you have anything else on on this character, Frank? Uh, before we before we move on, well, the only other thing I would say about the sheriff actually also is something it it ties into what I would say about Luke Benson mm -hmm. in turn uh, who um, in terms of you know who's really running the town, you know, who, like. You have, you know, you have the sheriff who is, you know, is he sheriff in name only, you know, ostensibly he's the leader of the leader of the people. And here's Luke Benson, who's quite literally and figuratively calling the shots and ignoring everybody who was telling him, get yourself under control. Yeah. And like you said, the sheriff, <laughs> for whatever his reasons were, whether it was fear, coward, whatever it may have been, he just... Yeah, he he just didn't uh, he didn't live up to the task. He didn't no. live up to his to his to his job, his role. No, not at all. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that Superman didn't kind of take him to task, saying, "Do something." You know, you're the sheriff here. But anyways, I guess <laughs> maybe Superman should give him a nice talking to. So, as we did mention him, let's get to whom he may be considered the main antagonist and villain in this film. We do have the trigger happy Jeff Corey as Luke Benson. So. Uh, Frank, what did you make of this character? As I was watching Luke Benson from his very first appearance on the screen to the very end of the film, all I could think of, honestly, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but all I could think, I, I thought of two movies. I thought of the original Frankenstein with Boris Karloff, and I thought of 
much more recently, Halloween Kills. Because both of those movies, Frankenstein and Halloween Kills, both of those movies have the same encompass the same theme that this one does that superman and the mall man does the idea of mob rule mob mentality and how just this blind lust for you know violence can result you know it'll take you into places where you really didn't want to go and with luke benson here he is he's trigger happy he takes shots at superman he decks the sheriff in the face he i mean this is a guy who you know no holds bad i mean this guy takes no prisoners i will say there was one moment that did make me chuckle when benson first tried punching superman and the sound effects it reminded me of a three stooges <laughs> kind of a moment the sound effects they put in <laughs> i did find that i did find that funny but uh now then superman lifts him off the ground and he says you know again with the clear messaging superman says to luke benson it's men like you who make it who make it difficult for people to understand each other you know in the dialogue again is you know, pretty much hammering you over the head. You're nothing but trouble. He puts him down and, uh, you know, Benson doesn't take the hint. <laughs> he doesn't take the hint. He doesn't listen. He just continues on with this, uh, with this hunt, this manhunt for these, uh, for these two mole men. So yeah, he's the main antagonist. Like you said, he just keeps on mobbing. Um, when the, the scene, when he shoots that mole man, um, Area, you know, he and his two cronies, they have the, you know, they have their rifles and Superman flies down and he says to them, you know, don't do it. He's trying to stop them. And again, all Benson knows how to do is to retaliate with physical violence, swift and blinding violence. And he, as if he didn't learn his lesson the first time, he still tries to punch Superman <laughs> and then he tries shooting him and the bullets go, you know, bouncing off Superman's chest. Superman, of course, overly easily overtakes him. And even then Benson doesn't take the hint. It's, it's this idea of, it's this idea of blind myopic, you know, I have one, one thing in mind and one thing only, and that is just, and that is just to use violence to restore law and order, you know, like a twisted logic of takes violence, get the peace takes violence to get to, you know, to get these mall, you know, to, to, to eliminate any unknown threat, you know, and I think that's the word that I really think this whole thing boils down to is Benson is a guy who's just filled with fear. He is filled with absolute fear. What is he afraid of? Yeah, he's afraid of the mole men, but why is he afraid of them? Because he doesn't know them. He doesn't understand them. It's fear of the unknown. It's, it's ignorance, paranoia, you know, and Superman's saying, you know, they don't miss any harm and Benson won't hear it. All he sees is, you know, the physical differences and he's like, nope, they're evil. They need to be eliminated. So, you know, get out of my way or you're going to. Too. Very, very well said. I totally agree. And with so, you. You know, Go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, the, yeah, the only other thing, uh, just to bring back Frankenstein and Halloween Kills, both of those movies show how mob violence sometimes results in not really what you were looking for um you know in frankenstein of course you have the well i don't want to give away any spoilers to anybody who may not have seen frankenstein yet but let's just say that uh, it doesn't go in the direction that the mob was expecting 
it, to a point it does, I guess, but Halloween kills most definitely not. I mean, they screw up left and right. So I think that there is a message here of, um, pretty much what American patriotism, I think was defined at the time we will use, you know, you know, we, we, we will use force if we have to, but only if we have to, you know, the, the whole notion of truth, justice, the American way, you know, where, you know, and that was very much the ideals that were my choice of words. Here. I don't know if propaganda is the most appropriate word to use, but in an era when everyone was afraid of their neighbor for potentially being a communist in an era when everybody was fearful of anybody of Japanese or Korean or German descent um, because of, you know, World War II, the Korean War. For this movie to come out in 1951 and to say, hey, if you're afraid of people simply because you don't know them, if you perceive them as a threat simply because they're not uh, people that you're used to seeing every day, don't be like this guy. Because in the end, Superman will get you, basically. <laughs> that's, that, that's very, very true. And I, I suppose he very much does represent that. That's kind of a, like you, you very eloquently said, that kind of myopic one view of violence and hating everything that's different from you because if it's different from you it must be evil and obviously that's the message that this movie is all about and it's interesting that i guess in this town nobody's ever seen superman because like when he shows up it was like who's this dude and i guess they they kind of after a while because even benson at first kind of looks at him going oh okay it's some guy in a in a blue a blue costume with a red cape kind of looking at me all and because obviously, I guess the legend of Superman hasn't yet reached Silsby, or maybe rumors may have circulated because we do have the older chaps who are like saying, oh, uh, they, I, they say he can fly. I didn't see him fly. So maybe some rumors have been spreading to Silsby as well about, I don't know, that there is this guy who can, you know, leap tall buildings in a single bound and who's faster than speeding bullets and so on. But they don't seem particularly kind of like, oh my God, it's Superman. So I guess maybe they weren't familiar with this character. It's hard to say. But um, going to Benson again, yes, I, he very much represents that mob mentality. And I think when Superman calls them out on the whole, um, you know, the Nazi thing, that's very much, I guess, what, what uh, I suppose probably also the, the, the comparison is very much that agitator who will resort to violence because these people are different from you. You have to get rid of them. They're, they're kind of threatening our way of living. We don't understand them, so they must be evil. And that's very much Benson's thing. And I, and I think his pig-headedness is just hilarious because, yeah, you shot him once. It doesn't work. What makes you think that after 55 times shooting him, it's going to work again? I mean, it's just the guy is just so, so pig-headed. There's just no tomorrow. And, and I get, he very much runs this town, like you were saying, because it seems like Everybody follows him. He is literally the bully of the town and everybody will listen to what he says. I mean, he has these folks like, oh, set fire to that house. We'll burn the mole man inside. Or, or when they go to the police, to the sheriff's office, they're right there with him. So nobody seems to want to dare to question what Luke Benson has to say. So I'm assuming that um, because he is so much of a bully and it being such a small town, he literally is running it. Because the sheriff is not going to put him in prison or do anything about it. So clearly, Luke Benson is like, 
there's nobody here to challenge my authority. And the only person to do that is Superman at this point. So I think it's a, it, it was an interesting sort of antagonist to have this time around for a character like Superman who is used to super threats, you know, be it uh, aliens or superpowered beings or criminal geniuses like Lex Luthor. You wouldn't usually get a street level guy like Luke Benson, who's clearly, you know, not much of a threat in the long run to Superman. But I guess it's what it's the lies he's spreading, which makes him so dangerous. And that's why Superman obviously has to put a stop to him. But uh, I, it was it was it was curious to find a character like this in a Superman movie, as I, as I was saying. <laughs> so did you have anything else to add when it came to uh, Luke Benson or um, or would you like to, or shall we move forward to our next two characters? I think pretty much uh, between the two of us, I think we've said it all as far as Luke Benson is concerned. Yeah. I mean, he, he I think he just represents everything that is ugly and unfortunate when it comes to, like you said, you know, that, that pig headedness, that ignorant paranoia mm. and what sometimes, you know, impulsive impulsivity when you make impulsive decisions out of that mindset, you know, the kinds of things that can happen. Exactly. So then let's round off our characters with the mole men themselves. We have, she says, our two main mole men. We have Billy Curtis and Jerry Marin as our two main mole men. So what did you make of these two, of these characters, Frank? Well, the first thought that I had when they made their first appearance on screen and you mentioning their name, the actors' names just now sort of pretty much answers the question that I have. Was one of them, Jerry Marin, was he from The Wizard of Oz? Was he one of the mm -hmm. lollipop kids? Correct. I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. Okay. Um, because when they first appeared on screen, my thought was, oh, are these child actors or are these little people? And um, yeah, yeah they're, they're climbing out and... Yeah, the enlarged heads, the bald, the baldness on the top, and you know, but everything else seems to be, you know, fairly, fairly humanoid. But because the question was, we don't even know if they're human beings. One of the characters, I forget which character says that, but one of the characters at one point says, we don't even know if they're human beings, and that question was never really answered. So I'm assuming that if they come from Earth, technically, that they're part of the human race, just a different form of the species and yeah. they're not extraterrestrials they come from the same planet as you know as human beings at least that's the way i was understanding it but uh they were clearly made they, they were clearly intended to be made out to be the the victims in all of this and you know and that makes sense their minds in their own business they're living their lives six miles under the surface of the earth all of a sudden their home is invaded by the by this you know by this human made machinery drilling for oil this oil this this oil well and they don't know what this machinery is and just like we have never seen the mole men before the mole men probably have never seen a a you know a, a human being this version of a human being before so there's that that strangeness that unfamiliarity so when Luke Benson comes around and through his influence and his charisma, I don't know if you can call charisma, but through his, his power, his control, his, his, his ability to dominate 
you know, uh, almost like a cult leader, almost he's able to, you know, manipulate and control the emotions and the minds and the decisions of everybody in the town or anybody who's giving him, you know, at least half an ear. So along comes Luke Benson and he greets them with nothing but threats and violence. You know, then that just sets up the whole story to go in a direction that it needed to go in, in order for this anti-violence, you know, plea for, compassion and understanding that superman talks about at the end in order for that message to come across clearly the story does have to go in the direction that it does you know you do need to have benson succeed in shooting one of the mole men and having him fall off the um the, the bridge or the cliff above the reservoir where he was um of course superman saves him but you needed to have benson you needed to have the mall men know concretely that Benson meant business, that he was not all talk. He was willing to shoot to kill. And with that, and with the misunderstandings, when Clack and Lois first come across Pops on the ground dead, and that's when Lois is saying, oh, he was an old man, he was having a heart attack. Uh, you know, the idea was that the mole men you know, quote unquote, murdered him, that they killed him. And, you know, here's the sack of oranges in the ground. And why is the sack of oranges so far away from him? Someone obviously got to him. So, you know, there, there is, that, you know, there's that uncertainty of, you know, are these creatures, you know, are they okay? And Superman's the one who sees things as they really are eventually. And that's when he, you know, makes a case for them saying, you know, their home has been invaded. We're the ones who caused them harm. They're not the ones intending to do us harm. At the end, you know, the big climactic moment, here they are with that weapon and they're shooting at Benson. And by the way, <laughs> that's just one more thing to say about Ben. Uh, we're, we're supposed to think this, but at first I was thinking, wow, Benson is built of tough stuff if he's surviving this. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I thought, if you know, the radioactive, the radioactive, uh, you know, I thought he was, so he's screaming out, help me, help me. The moment they're shooting, they're shooting at him with this weapon of some sort. And so we're, we're supposed to believe that they're shooting radioactive material at him. And he's still alive. He's still standing. He's still breathing. Along comes Superman and he takes all the, you know, he takes all the laser blasts and uh, <laughs> Benson walks up to him and he says, hey, you saved my life. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, how, you know, if a ball and a daisy and, you know, a, a lump of grass all turn glowing radioactive, how come he's not, you know, I thought, honestly, I thought Benson was, it was going to be like a big reveal that Benson came from somewhere else. Um, obviously that's not the case. So then of course it was revealed. Oh, it turns out they're not radioactive after all. Uh, so, so oh, okay. So that explains that. But uh you know, I just keep coming back to the final act in the film, the final act of the moment. They return home, they bring their wounded friend with them, and they blow up the, the, uh, you know, the oil well and, and the, so that nobody can ever bother them again. And Lois has the line that's just the <laughs> hitting the nail right in the head. You know, she, she hits the viewers right between the eyes with the movie's message. She says, it's almost as if they're telling us you live your life and we'll live ours. And so I saw them all men as victims. 
I saw them as victims of misunderstanding. I saw them victims of circumstance. I saw them as defending themselves at the end, even though Benson perceived it as aggression on that on their end. But I also was wondering, 1951, was this, I mean, especially because it was from, it was a Hollywood production. Was this a message having to do with the Red Scare and people in Hollywood, you know, being accused of being communist, having communist sympathies, communist leanings, and nobody in the country was safe from, you know, suspicion or accusation, you know, neighbor turning against neighbor, friends turning against friends. And everyone was just so fearful of being labeled a communist that they were, you know, that, well, some people were willing to, you know, throw other people under the bus. I and think, yeah. and you know, like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, they took part in a match on Washington a couple of years before this movie was made. And I, I looked this up and um, the match was to show solidarity for those writers and producers and actors who were accused of communism. And so they made their feelings on the whole issue known. They felt it was unjust and unconstitutional, all these accusations of communism. And then the big brass at Warner Brothers pulled, <laughs> pulled Humphrey Bogart by the air right into the office. And they said, no, uh, uh, no good. They said, you're not going to ruin this studio. You either make a public apology or we're releasing you from your contract. And Bogart chose to make the public apology and referred to himself as a dope, his word, dope. He said, I never should have done that. And I'm an American. And I realize now basically what we see all the time these days, anytime a celebrity, an actor, a sports figure, whoever issues a mea culpa and people say, oh, is this for PR purposes or are you really sorry? So that's what Bogart had to do. And there was also the case of uh, the screenwriter, Dalton Trumbo, uh, the, the movie Trumbo that came out about six or seven years ago with Brian Cranston playing him. Um, you know, he was a screenwriter of, uh, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's and he was blacklisted. So for being 1951, you know, Lucille Ball was accused of communism at one point that threatened to shut down production on I Love Lucy. Meanwhile, on the other network, on Jackie Gleason, the Jackie Gleason show, he does a sketch where he's proclaiming how America is the greatest country in the world and it's income tax season and Amer the American government can have any taxes that it wants from, from, from Ralph Cramden. And so, so you just seen like all these extremes that people went to. Here it is, 1951, Superman and the Mole Men comes out. Here is Lois Lane saying, you live your life, we live ours. And that got me wondering, does any of this have to do with any of that? Maybe I'm stretching things, you know, maybe I'm just being overly analytical here. I, <laughs> I admit that that's <laughs> could very well be the case, but it is something that crossed my mind. So it was just something I wanted to put out there. I, I think you make a great, great point because no, no surprise, I believe this movie is pretty much independently financed because I don't believe we see the Warner Brothers logo or anything like that, because obviously the you know Warner Brothers these days owns DC Comics and any DC Comics characters. So we don't sort of have a big studio name behind this. So I have a feeling that you are definitely on the money when it comes to that, because, you know, I think these were what some of the few people who were speaking out against these this uh, witch hunt that had been instituted with 
the the Red Scare and uh, and hating everybody who might have been potentially communist. I mean, you know, you mentioned a couple of a couple of names there for sure. I mean, Charlie Chaplin was another victim of this kind of situation where he literally had to flee the country because he was he was also under should we say suspicion and had been accused of being a communist sympathizer, and so. He, he obviously had to leave. And, and I think the fact that this movie was, in inverted commas, independent speaks for itself in the sense that uh, it wasn't, maybe a big studio would not touch a subject like this in 1951. Because like, if we do this and they see what we're doing, we might end up on that blacklist too and might never work in this town again. So I think that's maybe why. And interestingly, this was actually the very first, should we say, superhero movie to come out because before we'd had serials, but we'd never had a full-blown movie. And so once again, Superman being the first, should we say, superhero was also the first to actually get a full-length movie. You know, more than once, this, like you said, the Christopher Reeve film. So he was always the first superhero to kind of dip his toes into this. Uh, into this. And, and yeah, and I, I definitely agree. I definitely think that's the case. And when it comes to mole men, I think they literally represent not only the persecuted people from World War II, but like you said, the folks who uh, were blacklisted and who were, were accused of being communists. And the fact that they don't, you know, they don't seem to be able to speak the language or should we say use sign language. I was wondering where that might also have been the whole thing of them being labeled as foreign in the sense of, you know, maybe being an ethnic group or the foreigner who doesn't speak English. And so they're kind of doing the whole sign gestures. So. That was also there was also that because at first you know when you see them they're very much that kind of classic alien or movie monster that you might see from the time it almost reminded me of like a classic Doctor Who episode where you'd have these very sort of and you know me being a huge fan of Doctor Who it's the kind of creatures you might see in you know the early Doctor Who episodes so it gave me that kind of vibe but I love the fact that the big review is the moment and not the threat and that they're the ones who are. Should we say, and it's Benson who it's one of our own who is literally with the bad guy, and it's not the different, the different, uh, you know, species of humans. So I, I, I thought they served their purpose and they did so well. It was a little bit weird when it came to the, should we say, the power set of these characters, as in they bring out this gun and, like you said, they're shooting at Benson. He's like, oh, I'm dying, I'm dying. And then it stops, he's like, oh, I'm good. You know, so it's like, were they giving him like a very heavy sun shower or what? I was, I was sort of unclear about that. And then of course, we find that apparently Superman is impervious to whatever it is the mole men are shooting at. And we're just like, yeah, go ahead. I can do this all day. And so it's not even bothering him. So I, I was kind of uh, sort of scratching my head as, what are they shooting at him exactly? Because if that's radium, Benson should have been like fried after a couple of shots. So... I was I was kind of surprised about that, but I liked what the the, the role they served and um, and I thought it was you know Curtis and, and Marin did a great job at playing these the, the mole men and for what they had to do and yeah and I really felt bad when one of our mole men is literally chased by Benson and his men he's in the house and about to set fire to the house and I was like oh my god is he going to get out well how's he going to get out and so on and luckily he escapes but uh, yeah. The, it, once again, subtlety is not a part of this movie. It's all about, you know, love everybody, you know, understand that even though they might not look like you, everybody is, you know, you shouldn't judge just because they're different. So I guess that's the message that was being brought. So 
All in all, I thought that this was a great addition to the, the Superman franchise. So speaking of which, did you have before we get to ratings, Frank, did you have any other thoughts on this movie before we do get to ratings? The only other thought really is just to reiterate how much I was reminded of Frankenstein, not just because of the fire scene that you just mentioned. I mean, although that's a big parallel, Frankenstein's creature being caught in the windmill, they set it, the mob sets it on fire. Um, but the whole idea of, again, misunderstood, therefore feared, you know, something that is vilified and in the eyes of the supposed heroes, the idea is we vilify him. Let's nullify him. And, uh, you know, and, and, and on a test, somewhat of a tangent, just one last point I, I was, I was curious about looking at the makeup that these two actors were wearing, you know, to play them all men, but well, all four of them. Um, it got me, I don't know. It got me wondering, you know, is this, is this, uh, I mean, the times being what they were in 1951, I was wondering, is this something that would really pass today? Like, is, would it be considered ableist, you know, um, you know, kind of, kind of like uh, the Oompa Loompas and Willy Wonka, you know, or mini me and Austin Powers, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, using to the, using to quote unquote comedy's advantage you know, look at how many how many jokes can we mine out of this? How many psych eggs can we mine out of this? Or conversely, in this movie, in Superman and the Mole Man, uh, because they look different, how can they be as fearful looking as possible? How can they be as frightful as possible? Here they are peeking in through the little girl's bedroom window that was wide open. And I can easily see, especially back then, how any little kid watching this movie might've found that to be a really disturbing moment, you know, might've had nightmares about it, or maybe the image of it might've lingered in their minds long after they walked out of the theater. So that was one thing that crossed my mind was, uh, you know, going from playing a munchkin where everybody was saying some pretty disparaging things behind the scenes to, uh, to, you know, to this where the idea is okay you look different so that's why everyone's going to be afraid of you at first but don't worry we'll make good you know you'll be the victim in the end i, I don't know i, I was I'd, I'd be very curious to have a conversation with whether it would be the director or the screenwriter the story the filmmakers the film I'd, I'd be curious to hear you know what their original intention was with these characters Good point. And, uh, and I think it's very poignant that once again, you mentioned the Frankenstein movie, because the only person who seems to have any kind of sympathy towards these, these, the moment is a child. And it's literally the innocence because the little girls looking through and it's like, do you want to come in? And they come in and she's like, want to play ball, want to play ball. And they're kind of, she's, they're tossing the ball back and forth. So that is very much, I'm sure that's very much a homage to, to the, the classic Frankenstein movie of the fact that only innocence or a child who has no prejudice, isn't born with prejudices, will sort of pretty much treat everybody equally. And I so think it's obviously it takes a child to show what horrible people we are in general and that we have prejudices, whereas kids grow up with, you know, or some of them, should we say, still have that they're completely colorblind, they're completely race blind, and to them, everybody's, you know, 
decent or good unless proven otherwise. So I think uh, I think it, it was very a great, great homage there too, and well spotted there for sure, Frank. So speaking actually of ratings, then what do you give Superman and the Mole Men out of ten? Out of ten, given the story, given the what I perceive to be the intended message, given the time period that it came out in, and you know, obviously you can't fault dated visual effects, for example. I would give Superman and the Mole Men, I would give it an eight out of ten. I would give it an eight out of ten. I think that it is just long enough to tell the story that it wants to tell it does it's only an hour long so it's not they easily could have padded it you know they could have milked it and expanded it to be 75 90 minutes and they could have added scenes that really wouldn't have contributed much to anything so it kept things moving at a brisk pace so that there was no momentum lost which is a sign of good editing good storytelling to me anyway so i would i would give it eight out of ten very fair. And it looks like we're in sync because I'm also going to give this 8 out of 10. I thoroughly really enjoyed it. I had watched it a while back. So I remembered most of it, but uh, there were parts of it I had kind of forgotten. So uh, I definitely enjoyed re-watching it. And I think it's a great addition to the Superman mythos. And uh, I'm so glad we finally got to discuss and review this one on the podcast because we had reviewed all iterations of Superman other than Christopher Reeves. So it was, you know, other than George Reeves, pardon me. So it was great to actually have a George Reeves a movie to discuss on this podcast. So it's an 8 out of 10 for me as well. So um, when it comes to recommendations, Frank, you know, for those who might en- who might have enjoyed this film, do you have anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners that you think they might equally enjoy? I would say the first two Superman feature films, first of all. I think that both Superman and the Mole Men and the original Superman movie are products of their times in the sense that the ideals that they embody reflect their times. As we already said, everything having to do with, you know, you know, post-World War II America, American ideals, that kind of thing, truth, justice, the American way, 1951, George Reeves, as Superman saying, uh, you know, just, you know, when, when this is not what, people do people don't hurt people and then in the 1978 original film you have quite a different message spoken by lois lane it's a it's a small throwaway line it's 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 a it's a like a gag line you know nothing is made out of it really but it's just one that that i can remember when he tells her when she first meets him and he tells her i'm here to fight for truth justice in the american way she laughs that mago kid a laugh and her response is you're going to end up fighting every politician in the country then if you're, if you're looking for truth, justice in the American way. And that was such a 1970s post-Watergate, post-Vietnam kind of sentiment. So I would say Superman and the Mole Man, watch the original Superman afterwards and you'll really get a lot of great insight into how the character's ideals, the character of Superman, his ideals, uh, how the other characters respond to his ideals, how that evolves with the times. Um, Superman three and four, 
less said the better uh superman <laughs> one and two definitely and i and i would say the henry cow i would say that uh those are underrated those are underrated um i, I do think that uh there's a lot of value to be found in those as well so i would say really anything in the superman franchise and i have to admit as far as any other superhero is concerned i have not seen the 1960 the late 1960s i have not seen the adam west batman feature film so i can't knowledgeably recommend it but i can say you know <laughs> batman is a great go-to as well <laughs> Oh, I'm right there with you. And yes, we had a great time reviewing Batman 66 uh, at the time on this podcast, for sure. And I'm right there with you when it comes to his recommendations. And it's funny. It makes me think of, it comes to me now when, I, when, you, when you mentioned that Superman 3 and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, similar subjects might have been tackled a little bit when it came to, especially The Quest for Peace, when it came to, obviously, the nuclear threat and everything else. And I think this movie actually tackles that better. Aside from obviously the whole concept of equality and, you know, loving your neighbor and all this kind of thing, I think there also is obviously a little bit of the um, fear, if you will, of, you know, radiation and what that can do to you and, th and this kind of situation. So, and I think Superman the Moment actually handles that much better than what we saw in Superman, the quest for peace, which I think is saying a lot, seeing the budget of this film and the length and seeing what they had when it came to the quest for peace. So I think that's saying quite a bit, but yeah, I'm right there with you. Definitely, folks, check out the first, those first two uh, Superman movies. And while you're at it, I mean, I believe they're actually available on YouTube as well. Some of the episodes of the George Reeves TV show, if you enjoyed this iteration, I, I definitely did. So I, I would definitely suggest you check those out as well. So, of course, that is our movie. And if, dear listeners, you want to be like the wonderful Frank Mendoza and, uh, and share your thoughts on the movies we discuss here, or if you'd like to take the plunge like Frank and join us here on the show, you can do so by shooting us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Once again, that's happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. If you feel the show support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness in Darkness, or follow us on Twitter, we're at High Darkness Pod. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, feeling generous, you can check out the great tiers we have going on on Patreon. They will be able to put films that go outside of what are considered regular superhero movies or films inspired by comics like Road to Perdition or Death Note or I Kill Giants or even films which inspired comics such as The Aliens franchise, Robocop, Terminator and more. Check all that out and join our army of patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash happiness in darkness. And a big, big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support. And Frank, when it comes to you, when you're not here discussing Superman and superhero movies, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Probably the first and best place to go to would be social media. Um, I, can be find, I can be found on Twitter at filmbuff1974. That's the year I was born. So <laughs> filmbuff1974. And I can also be found on Instagram at frankmendoza1974. That's Mendoza with an A and an S, not an E and a Z. Um, and on Facebook, I have a public film group called Silver Screeners, which is also the name of my podcast that I've been doing now for a little bit over a year. You can find it on most major pod podcasting platforms, Apple, Good Pods, Spotify, Google, Amazon. Uh, it's called Silver Screeners. And I recently began a second podcast with a friend of mine in Liverpool, England, called Movies Across the Pod. So I have two movie podcasts going. And 
on social media, on Facebook, same name as the podcast, Silver Screeners. Um, I hope it's a lot of fun for everybody who's part of it, and I'm always looking for more people to join. I post all things movie-related, past, present, and future, and polls and announcements about upcoming podcast episodes, upcoming film lectures that I give, both Zoom and in person. So, yeah, the more the merrier. Come on in. Fantastic. Well, folks, definitely be sure to check out all the wonderful things that Frank does because they are indeed awesome. When it comes to me, for you country music lovers, I also host the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. And when for about that, visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, you're also free to check out our latest project, Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast, where Frank actually joined us for, and we had a great time having us on, uh, having him on. There, of course, myself, Zan Sparas, and Rachel Friend are reviewing all the movies won the Oscar for Best Picture from 1927's Wings to the Present Day. Also, if superhero TV shows are your speed, myself and Charles Skaggs can be found on the Fandom Zone, where we're currently reviewing Miss Marvel, the latest MCU TV show. And if you're fans of Titans or Doom Patrol, uh, we can also be found on Titan Talk, the Titans podcast, where we're waiting for the new season of Titans and Doom Patrol. But if you want to check out our thoughts on the previous three seasons, you can do so. And speaking things to come on this show, next time we'll be taking on the 95 Brian Spicer film, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. That said, when it comes to you, Frank, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a joy and pleasure to have you on and definitely look forward to having you back anytime. Same to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity and you're welcome on my show anytime as well. Be great to have you. Oh, we definitely would love to love to come on anytime for sure. And that said, folks, so thanks as always for this show and supporting us. We will see you next time with Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Until then, stay super. Ciao.